Well, good morning, everyone. I would like to personally wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers here this morning. I've had the joy and blessing of being a dad for almost 40 years and a granddad for between 11 and 12 years. And it is a joy and blessing that all those who are fathers and mothers, you know, parenting is not for cowards, and it's uh, not just a blessing and a joy, but it's a challenge also. There are ups and downs, there are celebrations, there are heartaches, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, and I hope that's true of you. So remember, if you're fortunate enough to still have your dad here, call him. Don't text him, but call him and wish him a happy Father's Day. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a brand new series, and uh, it's a series that Will and Ryan and I are going to collaborate on for pretty much the duration of the summer. And you can have the first slide up there. Kind of hard to see, unfortunately, but it is a series called Walking Out Your Faith, a sermon series from the book of James. So over the next week, we'll, weeks, we will be looking at James, which is a very practical book. Not that other scripture books, uh, books in the scripture are not, but James is particularly so. So as we begin, uh, just before we get into the text for today, let's give a little background on the book of James. We'll just spend a few minutes doing this, so you can go to the next slide, Larry. The first question that we'll look at is who wrote the book of James? Now, I know that sounds maybe like a no-brainer, but really it, it isn't because there are a number of books in Scripture that bear someone's name that were not written by that individual, like Paul's letters to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, Philemon, and books in the Old Testament too. But in this case, this is indeed written by James. So the book of James is written by James, a servant of God, he says in the first verse, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it begs a second question, which James wrote it? The New Testament speaks about at least three Jameses. One or two of them were disciples of Jesus. The more notable one, James the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, and the lesser known disciple, James the son of Alphaeus. And the third, which I'm thinking of, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's mentioned in the Gospels, he's mentioned in the book of Acts, he's mentioned in Paul's writings. And the, the weight of scholarship says that it, it was indeed James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this epistle. James, the half-brother of Jesus. You can imagine that being the half-brother of Jesus wasn't easy, right? Can you imagine... Mary saying to James, why can't you just be like Jesus? He never does anything wrong. <laughs> it might have caused for a little tension, I don't know, but we have a couple scripture verses from the Gospels that sort of indicate how James and his siblings looked on Jesus when he began his earthly ministry. It may be somewhat surprising, but what the first one is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and it says this, this is after the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been healing, he's been teaching, performing miracles, etc. Then Jesus went home, and once again a crowd gathered, as they always did whenever he was in town, whatever town he was in, so that he and his disciples could not even eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take custody of him, saying, He is out of his mind. James was among them, most likely. 
Why exactly they thought that, it's hard to say. The scripture doesn't elaborate. They may have just thought this Messiah thing is getting out of hand. We've got to get control of him. Then we also have a passage in the Gospel of John in the 7th chapter, verses 3 to 5, and it says this, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may, there may see the works you are doing. For no one who wants to be known publicly acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then this verse, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. James among them. But then something happened that changed James's mind. What happened was Jesus came to the end of his earthly ministry. He was arrested. He was tried. He was crucified. He was buried. And then he rose from the dead. Amen. And that convinced James, the half-brother of Jesus, that yes, he is the Son of God. And he says he became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first verse of this epistle. After he rose from the dead, he appeared to James. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And James not only had his life transformed, he became a leader in the church of Jerusalem. We see that in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles. So who wrote the book of James? James, the half-brother of Jesus. When was it written? Well, there's a little bit of variation on, uh, among scholars as to the timing, but it falls somewhere between 40 AD and 60 AD. It had to be most likely, well, it had to be before 62 AD or so, because that is the year when James, the servant of Jesus, died for his faith. He was martyred. Many of the scholars look toward the earlier date of 40, 45 AD, and if that's true, this makes the book of James the oldest book of the New Testament. There were no books likely written before James' epistle, if indeed it was written 40 or 45 AD. And it would have been written during the timelines that's spoken of in the book of Acts, somewhere after the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, and the scattering of believers that's recorded in Acts chapter 8. So the timing of the writing, 40 to 60 AD, most likely toward that earlier time frame. And the last question we'll address before we get into the text, who are the recipients? And it tells us here in the first verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It is Messianic Jewish believers who, if indeed this was written around 40 AD, after the, the martyrdom of Stephen, the church, the book of Acts tells us, scattered. And so that was the first dispersion of the church. And the Messianic believers who were scattered in the dispersion were the ones who received this letter. Not that it didn't apply to all believers after that and to us today, and that's why we're studying it. So that's a little background on the book of James. You can read much more online or in your study Bibles, but that will suffice for today. Let's get into the text. And the message today is titled, When the Going Gets Tough. When the Going Gets Tough. So James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. Uh, I'm reading in the ESV. You can follow along in the Pew Bible, the NIV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or perseverance, depending on the translation that you're reading, or patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you, Lord, for your precious word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak today through your servant James, the writer of this epistle, and through your servant James, the one standing behind the pulpit, Lord. Give us ears to hear what you would say, Holy Spirit, to encourage us, to challenge us, to strengthen us in our faith. And we ask that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There's no one who is here today who hasn't faced difficulty. No one. Trouble comes in all shapes and all sizes. Right now, in a group of 100 or so people, many of you are facing a trial, going through it at the moment, in these very days. Perhaps some of you have recently gone through a significant trial, great or small, but you've gone through that. And for others, there's one on the horizon that we don't know about yet. There are some of us here who are trying to make sense of what's going on in our lives. We just don't understand why things are the way they are. And this is what James addresses in at least the very beginning of this epistle. He speaks to these Messianic Jewish believers who have scattered outside of Jerusalem and Israel, who are undergoing persecution, who are undergoing trials and trouble. And he addresses this, especially in today's text. James, a servant, a bondservant, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't start out saying, James, the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, he's not a name dropper, because when he had that experience of coming to faith in the one who was his half-brother and realizing, yes, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, it brought him to his knees and he became a servant of God. Forget the half-brother thing. He became a servant of Jesus. To the 12 tribes. He says, Consider it all joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Let's have the second slide up there, Larry, or the next slide rather. When you're walking out your faith, sometimes it's an uphill climb. Sometimes it's an uphill climb. The first important point or subpoint to make here, as we've already said, trials will come. James says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say, if you should happen to face a trial, count it all joy. He says, when. It's inevitable. We all go through it. As believers, we all experience that. There are different kinds of trials. You can fill in the blank. You can think of the trials that you've been through or going through. But it's not if, it's when. 
And he says, Try, the word that he uses here to, when he uh, says, when you face trials of many kind, the Greek word carries with it the uh, idea of an unexpected encounter. Most of the time, we don't see trials coming. Sometimes we may, but most of the time, we don't see trials coming. And the word here carries that idea with it. And every usage in the New Testament of this word carries that same idea, an unexpected encounter. It's not something that's self-imposed. I remember fondly the words of one of our instructors at Elam Bible Institute, Stacy Klein, when he taught about suffering. And he made a point of saying there are different kinds of suffering, and one kind of suffering is stupid suffering. Stupid suffering. Say, for instance, you are driving down a street exceeding the speed limit by maybe 15 miles per hour, and a police officer catches you and pulls you over and gives you a ticket. And then two months or three months later, you're driving down that same street and you're exceeding the speed limit, and a police officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket again. Not recently, but it happened to me more than 40 years ago. Now, I didn't lose my license in that case. I did get points, and I had to go for counseling at the DMV. But let's say two months after that, oh, Derek's guilty too. Well, praise God. I'm not the only one. Well, I'll say that two months after that, I was going down that same street, and I was speeding, and I got pulled over again, and this time I lost my license. I couldn't go before the Lord and say, oh, God, I lost my license. I don't know. how I can't drive. How am I going to get to work? Why am I going through this trial? God would say, because you did something stupid. This is not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. This is not the kind of trial that we're talking about. It's not self-imposed. It's not even, most of the time, something that's ex expected. It's walking down the street, walking out your faith, praising God, serving Him, and all of a sudden you turn the corner and boom, there it is. An unexpected trial. A mountain with a 45-degree incline that you have to get over or around somehow. Or a 10-foot drop that you have to circumvent or go across on a tightrope. An unexpected trial. And James says, when this happens, count it all joy. And you say, what? What? Are you saying, James, that I'm supposed to be happy when I'm hurting? That's not what he's saying. Let's define terms. I'm going to read you a definition from a man named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great 20th century theologian, one of Gertie's favorites, I think. And this is what he says about joy. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less, and in him I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response 
and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not quite the same as happiness. Happiness oftentimes, most of the time, is circumstantially based. Oh, I got a big raise, I'm happy. Oh, I'm going on vacation, I'm happy. This is not happiness, this is joy. You can be in the midst of suffering. You can be in the midst of a trial. You can be in the midst of sorrow or hardship and still rejoice in the Lord. We sung about it this morning. You could still rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because you know that he has saved you. Because you know that you are his and he is yours. That you're in relationship with him. And that gives you an inner peace and an inner strength that you can't find anywhere else. It's an inner contentment that cannot be touched by the circumstances that surround us. He's at work behind the scenes. Everything around you might be falling apart. Everything around you looks like it's bad, but nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can break that relationship you have with him. You are secure in that because of Jesus. And because of that, you can walk through the trials with an inner contentment and joy because God is at work behind the scenes. Bottom of that slide, please, Larry. When we're walking through, walking out our faith, and it's an uphill climb, keep the right perspective. Keep the right perspective. Count it all joy, because you know that God is at work behind the scenes, even if you can't see it. Even if you can't see it. Let's go to the next slide, Larry, and the next verse. The next verse says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. When you're walking out your faith, sometimes the terrain is rough. So here's further explanation for counting it joy. We don't have trials just for trials' sake. It's not just some random thing. It's not a random thing. There's something more going on, as we've already said. And the something more that's going on is for your benefit. It's for my benefit. It's for our benefit and his glory. For our benefit and his glory. That's what trials are about. The testing of individuals is not a strange thing. It shouldn't come to any, as any surprise to us when we're tested because we see it all throughout the scriptures. We see individuals being tested all throughout the scriptures. We go back to Abraham and we see God testing him. We go back to Moses and we see God testing him. Job, the ultimate example of being tested. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers until God raised him up to become second in command in all of Egypt. We see it in Jesus. And we see how he was tested at the beginning of his ministry and all throughout his time on earth. We see it in Paul. We see it in others. Being tested should come as no surprise to any of us because all those who walk in faith are tested. James tells us that perseverance, steadfastness, is being developed as we are being tested. You're having spiritual muscle developed in you. He says to this people, 
Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know. So most of these folks who received this letter initially, they'd already gone through some stuff. They've been scattered. They've been persecuted. He says, you know. And in case you forgot, I'm telling you again. You know. And if you, by some chance, you don't know, I'm telling you. The testing of your faith is, per, is, is developing perseverance in you. This is the truth. Tests prove you know what you say you know. Tests prove that you know what you say you know. If you have driver's ed with Mike Walsh, and over the period of weeks, you do really well. Obviously, I didn't, based on what happened to me a few years after that. But if you do well and you follow the dis- keep a sub- uh, adequate distance between you and the next car, you check your mirrors, you check your everything out, you know, to use your turn signal. You pass driver's ed with flying colors. Mike says, you've done great. You know what? You still can't drive legally. You can't drive legally until you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and prove through written tests and driving tests, I guess it's still the same, I don't know, but written tests and driving tests that you know what you say you know. Tests prove that you know what you say you know. You can go to law school or some graduate school for a specific profession and do very well in all your studies, but you can't practice law until you pass that bar exam, until you show you know what you say you know. Test of faith is no different. God tests us, and he aims to show, aims for us to show him and other believers and the world that we know him, we trust him, to show others what we're made of. The Greek word that's translated here as um, steadfastness or perseverance literally means to remain under, to remain under. What we're talking about here is staying the course. It's much more than just a passive waiting. If you're locked into a traffic jam on I-95, as maybe some of you were here last week, I know many people who were, if you're locked into a traffic jam with cars in front of you and cars behind you and there's nowhere to go, you have to wait. You don't have any choice. You can wait well or you can not wait well. I'm not always one who waits well in those circumstances, I will admit. But you have no choice. And even those who had choices and were able to get off of 95 ended up going down to another road that was backed up because everybody else was doing the same thing. This is not what, so much what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the kind of waiting, the, the quality that enables you to finish the marathon or climb the mountain or navigate patiently through the rough terrain, ever moving forward, trusting in Jesus. It's an active waiting. Bottom of the slide, please, Larry. 
Sometimes the terrain is rough as we're walking out our faith. James encourages us to look at the bigger picture. It's not some random thing that we're going through. It's not suffering without any purpose. There's a bigger picture that we need to look at. God is at work developing perseverance so that we can serve him and love him under any and every circumstance and be a witness to the world in so doing. He's testing our resolve. So walking out your faith, sometimes it's an uphill climb. We need to keep the right perspective. Sometimes the terrain is rough, but we need to look at the bigger picture. Let's look at verse 4a, the first part of verse 4. It says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let perseverance complete its work. Next slide, please, Larry. It's already up there. When you're walking out your faith, sometimes you just want to give up. You just want to give up. Many of us have been at this place where we just feel like we can't go any further in this trial that we're facing. Probably most of us. James makes a point of saying, let perseverance finish its work. He doesn't say perseverance will finish its work. He says let perseverance finish its work. There's an act of the will involved here. A decision that we have to make to keep going despite the circumstances, despite the trial. Trusting in Jesus, pushing ahead. Because you see, if we don't do that, then we can abort what God is trying to do in us. If instead of keeping the right perspective and looking at the bigger picture, we grumble, we complain, and we curse, if we see a way of escape from the trial and we take it, then we fail the test. Listen to the words of the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. The natural tendency of trouble is not to sanctify, but to induce sin. A man is apt to become unbelieving under affliction. That is a sin. He is apt to murmur against God under it. That is a sin. He is apt to put forth his hand to some ill way of escaping his difficulty, and that would be sin. Hence we are taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, because trial has in itself a measure of temptation, and if it were not neutralized by abundant grace, it would bear us toward sin. Now these words, what I shared with Spurgeon says, they're not meant to bring condemnation because we know that God is a forgiving and a merciful God, but we also ought not to take lightly the intention of the trial that God allows to come into our lives, lest we abort what God is trying to do, lest we have to go around that same mountain again. Sometimes, in the midst of the trial, we want to give up. But, next, next uh, don't throw in the towel. There it is. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Lean heavily on that abundant grace of God, which Spurgeon speaks of. 
which God provides and push ahead, not in your own strength, because we can't do it, but in the strength of God's Holy Spirit in you. The great 20th century statesman Winston Churchill addressed the Harrow School on October 29, 1941, and spoke these words that have been often quoted, sometimes quoted as the only thing he said in that speech. It wasn't true. It was part of a larger speech, but an important part of it. He said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. This is in the midst of the Second World War, when things maybe began to turn right before the United States entering it, and the Allies were beginning to, just beginning to see the daylight. And the enemy, as powerful as he was, eventually fell because they didn't give in. Don't let the enemy rob you of what God wants to do in you because he can work in the midst of that trial as well. But what he intends for evil, God can turn for good. Sometimes you want to give up but don't throw in the towel. Press on in Jesus. <clears throat> the final slide, Larry, if you will, the last part of verse 4 says, And steadfast, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The end result of endurance through trial is another step towards God, toward God's plan for us. As we push through to the other side of that trial, we become, if you will, a little more sanctified. Romans 8.29, the first part of that verse, reads this way in the Amplified Bible. For those whom he foreknew, and then in parentheses or brackets, and loved and chose beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and then and ultimately share in his complete sanctification. Let me read that again. For those whom he foreknew and loved and chose beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and ultimately share in his complete sanctification. God is in the process of perfecting us. That's a big part of what sanctification is. We're not going to reach sinless perfection here. Not in this life, not on this earth. Some have taught that in the past. I haven't encountered anybody like that yet. I don't know about you. We're not going to get there. Not in this life, not on this earth. But we're going through the process of sanctification Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. Perfect here in this passage in James is often translated complete. A completeness in Christ. That's what God's aiming for, us, in, uh, aiming for in us. 
Make no mistake about it, it is our faith and our trust in Jesus which provides forgiveness of sin and reconciles us back to God. There's no way we can get there otherwise except through the blood of Jesus, except through what he's done. That's how perfection comes. But once we are saved, God begins the process of sanctifying us, changing us, changing the way we think, changing the way we act, changing the things that we do to be a reflection of what God has done in us. We're on the potter's wheel. We're being shaped. We're being molded. We're being formed for service to God. The final part of this last slide. Walking out our faith, we need to remember there's a divine purpose It's not random. There's a divine purpose, and we need to understand the ultimate objective to be made complete, lacking nothing. Title of the message is When the Going Gets Tough. That's the first part of a saying. Who knows what the second part is? Most of you do. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Let us, in the strength of God's Spirit, determine to let endurance have its way so that we can come to a place of maturity and completeness in Christ, being all that we can be and he wants us to be as we walk through this life. I'd like to ask Derek and the worship team to come, or maybe just Derek. I'm not sure if you're all going to come up, but as they're coming, I just want to share a story that was interesting. Um, Two weeks ago, we had reflective communion, and as Donna and I stood over here waiting just a couple of minutes before we went and knelt and received the bread and the cup, Derek began to play the song, My Life is in Your Hands. I turned to Donna and I said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I know that song. It's a song that I wrote maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. But as soon as I said that, I remembered that almost a year ago, we were having reflective communion, and Donna and I were standing there. I think we had just begun to kneel down, and Derek began to play, My Life is in Your Hands. I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I didn't ask Derek, but I don't suppose he started playing it because he saw me standing there. I know he knows I wrote it, but so I thought, hmm, well, Lord, what are you saying here? You saying something? I'm not one to look for signs and everything, but it just seemed kind of unusual. So then as we left that day, we were heading home, and we decided to take a different route home because we wanted to make a stop along the way, and we were going out Lancaster Pike. And I looked up and I saw a billboard promoting motorcycle safety that has a, a, boat, a motorcyclist on it, and it said, my life is in your hands. Uh, well, okay, Lord, I think you're really trying to say something here. So I began to reflect on the words to this song, and he spoke to my heart about some specific things through that. The second verse of this song says, You bought me with a price, the precious 
blood of Jesus. And so I know that I am not my own. And that's what he spoke to me. I know that I am not my own. We are not our own. Once we come to him, surrender our lives to him, we belong to him. And so when we go through these trials that James speaks of in the first few verses of this practical epistle, we have to remember we belong to him. We have to allow him to do as he desires in us and through us. So let's stand together. I asked Derek if we could play this song as we close today. And as we do that, there are those of you who are here today who are going through some trials, some testing. You may need prayer. You do need prayer. We all do. I'd encourage you to come, to kneel at the altar or pray. I'll ask the elders and others to come and be prepared to pray with those who will come forward. But let's go before him, sing the words of these songs, remember that no matter what happens around us, by the grace of God, we can stand. We can walk through it. We can be what he wants us to be. So let's sing together and come as you feel led. My life is in your hands And I will not be shaken The walls that are around me be afraid By faith
something of a life verse for me. It comes from Psalm 31, 15. The words of David. The altar is still open. The elders and others will be here to pray with you if you have needs. Let's close together in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your living word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you in all and every circumstance. Lord, that we need not fear the trials because you will walk through them with us if we let you. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people 
to allow all that you want to do in and through us in the midst of our walk with you to be accomplished. Lord, we ask your blessing now as we go forth into the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you, and lift up his countenance upon you, giving you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day.